All right. So I'm going to start off, good morning, with uh, uh, this is probably going to be, although I'm not in any hurry to get through the first four chapters because I see it as a, as a tremendous foundation for the whole entire book of Acts because it is the beginning of the book. So this is Luke laying down the foundation for what is going to happen, but most importantly, who is responsible for what is happening in the book of Acts and really the launch and the continuation of the church. And that person that's responsible for it is the Holy Spirit. And so when, when the Holy Spirit came in the book of Acts, people really got weirded out because what are some of the things that started happening? We had building shaking, right? We had people speaking in other languages. We had wind. We had boldness. We had this doctrine uh, that Jesus Christ rose from the, was killed by his own people. His own people killed the Messiah. And it was all done by the pre-knowledge uh, of God, the pre-ordination of God, it says. Verse 23 in chapter 2, we see a good balance of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. We see this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. So we see God planned this, the crucifixion out. But then he says, you nailed him to a cross. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death. And so this is, we're looking at this and Peter says, let me explain to you what is going on here. And he doesn't talk to them uh, in human words, in man's wisdom. What does he do? He goes right to the scripture. So that's the scripture I want to read. It's uh, everybody's wondering what's going on with this Holy Spirit. <clears throat> and he, Peter says, I'll start at verse 14. He took his stand with the 11. He raised his voice and he declared to them, men of Judah and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you. This is verse 14. And give heed to my words. <clears throat> For these men are not drunk as you suppose. For it's only the third hour of the day. So it's nine in the morning. But this is what was spoken of. This is that. So this has got to remember those two words. This, and he's pointing back to Joel, is that. This is what is spoken of through Joel the prophet. And now he quotes from Joel chapter two. You don't have to go there. Verses 28 to 32. It said, it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour, pour forth my spirit on all mankind. Now, again, this is all mankind. This doesn't mean every person. This means that it's not no longer just going to be on certain people within the camp of the Jews. It's all mankind, all types of people. As we see, all these people and all the nations are sitting there right now. So it's going to be poured out on all sorts of people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. So prophecy is speaking forth the word of God. Your young men will see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit and they shall prophesy. 
And in verse 19, I will grant wonders in the sky above, in signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So this is that. This is what Peter is saying right here is what is happening. Everybody is seeing at the time, the Holy Spirit's coming by. He says, this is that, but then he really elaborates. And there's a lot of stuff here that is like, ooh, wait a second. You know, how do we, how do we, and here's the magic word, interpret that. So I would like to spend, if we have to, half this discussing, half today's uh, talk on how do we interpret this passage? How do we interpret any passage? It's so important that when we read the Bible, whether you read one verse and meditate on that, or you read a whole book, you need to know how to interpret it. So how do we interpret the Bible? Does anybody know, like, how, how do you interpret it? Anybody want to volunteer it, like, what, how they go about interpreting a certain scripture when they read it? How do you go by, how do you say, what does this, what is God, the Holy Spirit, in his ultimate wisdom and infinite knowledge, and before time began, he wrote these words for a specific purpose. There's not one word in this Bible that is not written by the, by the very breath of God through, through man, but through the, by the breath, it's inspired by God, and it's used for us to know what it means. How do we make sure we know what that means? Yeah, we need to look at the context. Who is he talking to? Yeah, who is he? Let's peel back the onion. Shh, what's context? Who he's talking to? I used to pray before reading that the Holy Spirit would, um, would reveal what he wanted to, to explain. I think there's this, I don't remember where it was, but I will give you understanding in all things. Um, I remember that verse jumping off the page mm. for me. I was in college at the time. I had to write a paper on something, and I was like, I don't understand these journals. And when I read that verse, it was, I will give you understanding. And I think I applied that when I would pray over Scripture. Yes. Help me, Lord, to understand this Holy Spirit minister to me. Help me let, let that's great. We definitely want, we want to pray. But will the Holy Spirit ever give us something from Scripture outside of its context as a meaning of Scripture? Would the Holy Spirit ever do that? No, the Holy Spirit will always minister to us. But again, why does context have to be, and why is that important? So our, our modern day context is not forced into the text. Mm-hmm. That's, that's how we get misled. We can do that. We can force in stuff we want to see. It's natural. Yeah, and, and God can speak to you. I mean, listen, <laughs> I'll, I'll never forget. I was... And this was after, this wasn't like, well, should I um, do something? And I pray to the Lord and I just open the Bible and point. Bible bingo, Bible bingo right? I, I didn't do that, but I had prayed, this was 12 years ago, for about bringing on somebody onto my team at a, in my business at the time, whose name was Joseph. 
And I had prayed about this over and over and we did, you know, brought people in. And then I was reading the story of Joseph just happened to be in my daily reading. And I looked up what the word Joseph means and it means addition. (laughs) So I felt like God was using that in my way, right? But if I brought that to to the text at the sermon, it wouldn't work because it's out of context, you know, Joseph means addition. Now, what are you looking for right now? You know, name, you know, it, it would be a wrong context because I went outside of the way to interpret the Bible. So the reason we can, why can I speak these words to you right now and you understand me? We speak the same language. We speak the same language. Get, 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 let's get a little more technical. We understand what you're saying you're trying to communicate because we understand, we communicate similarly. Right, we know that certain words mean certain things. We're using a science of communication. So when I speak certain words, and even we can go to the point of inflection, we can go to the point, we can speak colloquial language, we can, but we know because you and I have a science of interpretation that we're using to communicate. So if we didn't have the science of communication, we could never communicate. We would never be able to understand fully other than maybe showing signs. If I go, you know, you know, my, my stomach hurts, but you may not know that if somebody was watching from a different planet, let's say, and they didn't know we had stomachs, that wouldn't even commute. They wouldn't understand because they didn't have that science of communicate. They don't have that common language. Yes. But in a general way, doesn't God know the plans for us? Yes. And that our future hope, you know, to give us a hope would be Jesus Christ. So aren't something specific, but have a, a general... Um, application. application. Yes, and that's... Interpretation. I, I want to say application. Yes, very good, Pat. Very intuitive. Yeah, well, I, I think we started with the Holy Spirit doesn't contradict himself and, and the, the message he gave to the original hearers had an intent. And so we have to yes. understand what that was before we cross culture, language, history yep. to, to interpret it for ourselves. But, but I, I think of it a lot like um, Google. Anytime I'm giving a little, yeah. talk, you know, like you have this text, okay, so it's a verse. What's that book? What was the genre of that book? What was it written for and why? And yes. And, all that, and you say, well, then, how does this book fit into all of redemptive history or all of <clears throat> scripture? Where does it fit into that story? Yes. And then, and then you start to kind of, and then, then how does this text relate to other things? Yes. But I think that's the kind of. I, I was thinking a little bit like Google coming. Yeah. Coming out <clears throat> before then being able to go in and and. This is great. This is exactly where we want to be for this scripture, where we're at right now in terms of our understanding. Yes. English is not my first language, right? And so I, that's why I can understand some of those things. When you come to study the Bible and you've never heard anything about the Bible, <clears throat> you have no idea. It's like me when we moved to the state. I spoke English. Okay, I had some, I had some English, but I will watch the news. Yes. I have no idea what they were talking about. Yeah. I understood the words, but they would say, Warren, 
Clinton, uh, places in New Jersey I've never heard right. of. So it meant nothing. Is yeah. A place, a person? Yeah, right. Uh, they would say park roll. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like things I've never heard before, right? Sure. Or whatever it is. And um, so, so if you don't have the context of these things, what do they mean or the history or whatever it is, it's really difficult to. Yes. And that's why it has to be the whole of the Bible. Mm-hmm. It, is, it is all of it. It's not just all of this means here this, but even though in, the, in this part doesn't mean that, and in this part doesn't yeah. mean, no, it has to be the same. It's scripture has to interpret scripture. Yes. But here, here's where you brought me, Pat, right where I want to go with this, because, and Kevin uh, colored it in great, so, uh, and a big picture, so I just want to drill down a little bit. So you have application of text. How does this apply to my modern day life? How does this apply to what's going on right now with me. And there's millions of applications. But before we get to that, we have to get to the meaning of the text. So the meaning of the text is different than the application. The meaning of the text, what the Holy Spirit is speaking, has to be in context. And and this is the way that I would say uh, evangelical uh, interpretation interprets the Bible. They use scripture to interpret scripture, yes, but they always find the grammatical and the historical meaning first, okay? Because God would have never, again, God's not illogical. He's not going to speak to people in an urgent way through a prophet, and it has nothing to do with those people he's talking to. It has to do with people 2,000 years down the road. No, it doesn't work that way. You have to find the meaning of the text Now, if it's a prophecy that the text is saying and talking about, it could potentially be a meaning for the future. But there's no necessarily, and this is a big debate within hermeneutics and within interpretation, I err on this side of it that there can't be double meaning to Scripture, especially when it comes to uh, historical, grammatical intent from the writer. It can't be, well, this means this over here, and then it means this over here as well, too. Now, we could say it means this, and it has this application, and that application, and that. I can say a scripture right now, tell you the context of it, and we all will agree on it. And then I could say, this is how we apply it to our life, and we could all have different messages that come from it. You understand? But it's the one meaning that's inspired by the Holy Spirit that we're garnering that application from. Got that? Okay. Now, yeah, add to it. One thing yeah. you said that's so important is if we don't believe that, then we're open to all sorts of doctrinal kind of, well, that was then, but now the Holy Spirit's opened this new time and this and that's what this means. Yep. And, and so, and, and how do you, what's the basis on that? Well, you know, yeah. their argument. And so it's, it's, if we don't believe what you just said, it's, it's, it opens the door to a lot of dangerous. Yes. It, it says that it meant it back there, but it doesn't mean it here today. Yes. Well, again, it meant it back there. Here's how we apply it here today. Well, when people say that, you know, I read this and, and they interpret it different. Well, I've heard the argument, well, that's not what it means to me. Mm-hmm. Oh, cool. Yeah. <laughs> But this is how we this is how we avoid that. So we we have to like we said. So the the, the summary of this 
this section is, is basically we have to find the meaning of the text through proper context. How do we get proper context? Through using what's going on, who is the writer speaking to, what are the historical, uh, uh, what is the historical, specific historical situation that's going on in that time? How would the hearers receive this that time, in that time? How would the speaker perceive this and see this at that time? Now we can, we look at that meaning, okay? Now we still don't go to application yet. Now we search the scriptures and see where we can find other scriptures that are connected to that. And this is how we, f- we prove and formulate our doctrine. Because if, if that scripture contradicts another scripture here, then we have to, but that says the same thing, we have to go over here and find the context as well too and see how that could parallel and, and, be, and still work because it has to work again because God isn't going to contradict him, himself. Okay, so... There's a, you may say, well, why, don't, why, does, why do we get these objections? Well, it, that's what it means to me. You know, we look at that and go, ha, that's so crazy. But there are, there are churches right now teaching this, the majority of Protestant churches. So you have Christendom, if you want to include Catholicism. You have Catholicism and you have Protestantism. And within Protestantism that believe in the Bible, there are only about 30% of those people that believe the Bible is the ultimate standard of truth. And they only believe, uh, they, they believe the Bible is the standard of the truth and they believe in this historical, grammatical way to interpret it. Because if we believe the Bible is the standard of truth, we need to know what it says. Now, if you don't believe the Bible is the ultimate standard of truth, but that it's really, really good advice, then you can just go anywhere with your interpretation. That's when we get like the moral interpretation of the Bible. There's a lot of churches that do that. Everything here as a moral concept to help us live a better life following in the example of Jesus. So it can mean any different thing. Robin. And on top of that, even a small percentage of that 30% would say, yeah, I believe the Bible would be the standard, but then it is really their interpretation or misinterpretation that they think is the actual thing that the Bible's saying. And that's oftentimes then it's their interpretation that's the ultimate. Why are they getting that though? Where's the mistake? I think because they're relying upon their modern day way of thinking that they maybe know better than other people. Or it could be a number of different things, but I know people that believe like that, that think like that, that believe the Bible's the word of God, but they think they don't see their modern day way of looking at life and the nuances that are very different from the ancient cultures and, and Israel or the New Testament people. Yeah. And, and they, they think from a modern day way of thinking. And they, mm. they think that's normal and acceptable. Yeah. Good point. Pat? I was just listening to that thinking we, we put the Bible into our context mm-hmm. rather than putting ourselves into the context of the Bible. Yeah. That's big. Yeah, we read, we read in our 21st century mindset into the first century or whatever century, and that's where we mess up. And we even see that with the Reformation. Like, you know, we read back our modern day 
theological problems back into that and into Calvin and, and all these. And then we take that and they, and so it's really important to be fully committed to the historical grammatical. What does the word mean? What does the situation mean? It's very simple. Who, what, where, when, why, and how. That's what you, how is the application, you could say. But if you get stuck, just, and you don't have to be a Bible scholar, just look, most Bibles today have, have cross-references. You can get a Haley's Bible handbook, which gives you an overview of the context, commentaries, but stay committed to, to that. Now, up until the Reformation, there was primarily the allegorical way to communicate it, which is metaphorically, like every scripture has many, many different meanings. It could be, a, you know, it, it's basically, um, uh, it's, it's telling a story and then applying it from a perspective, of, a metaphorical perspective to any aspect of life. Does that make sense? Like the parable of the sower. But say so you say the sower is right. God sees the gospel, the soil, and, and I think especially because of that, people have interpreted the parables that way. Yeah, and it's very spiritual, mystical, you know. But also, like when you said, when you go to the Catholic Church, in that sense, their lens is tradition. Mm-hmm. So their authority really is the Pope. Yes. So it's not even God. So, yeah. So and and we might see that clearly, but we can do that too. Yeah. I can read it from the context of my culture mm-hmm. uh, and how we do it, things in my culture, which and that's the beauty of the Bible. One meaning means it doesn't matter if you're a Christian in Timbuktu, Mexico, or United States, it's the same principle. Yes. It is one God. Mm-hmm. And so it's, um, it, it, it's what the Bible says, not what I wanted to say. Exactly. Very, very good. So scripture has one intended meaning. <clears throat> Meaning, I just wrote this note down. I thought this was important. Meaning isn't in the author's unexpressed intention. Meaning isn't in the author's unexpressed. In other words, you can't say, well, this means something. And you're like, well, where is that in the text? Well, no, this is what, you know, and then allegorically or morally, and we jump out there and we sort of make, we take the, the meaning and we mess it up and we, we take application and put it there instead. So application comes after. So that's what I wanted to get. I wanted to, is there any questions on, on that in terms of interpreting, interpreting, interpreting scripture? And Can you repeat your meaning? That's, is a definition? Or? What's that? What, what did you say meaning was? Um, yeah, meaning isn't in the author's unexpressed intention. That last, is that what you were saying? And so the... Fu- yeah, yeah. And, we, and so to find the author's expressed intention, we have to use the historical method, what's going on in history, grammatical, what does the word mean to the people there at that time, right? Where else is it in the Bible? Does that support it? And then when we get all that, the Holy Spirit bubbles through that text and hits you with all this incredible application that you're like, wow, and now you could take it and apply it to your life. And so that's why we want to always, we, you know, very, that's why I like to teach through the scriptures rather than do topical. I think topical messages are, are, are important sometimes, but in the, I really think for us as believers is we have to get down to the juice, get down to the very core of what this person is trying to say to the people there 
so we can understand the true meaning and then we can apply it. And so I say all that to say this, that it shall be in verse seven, in the last days that God will pour forth his spirit on all mankind. So we have to ask ourselves if we're going to understand this, when is the last days? When is the last days? Well, what were the people during the time of this hearing this throughout Jerusalem? They're coming to the Passover. They're coming to Pentecost. They're coming to the Feast of Booths. They're doing this every year. What? In anticipation of that new kingdom coming in. That new kingdom being inaugurated. The new world being the spark of the new world catching on and the Christians and people of God with the Holy Spirit in them taking the gospel out to the world, okay? And that new age breaking in to the present age, the new age breaking in to the present age. That's the last days in in certain interpretations of it. We're gonna find that out. Let's go to Hebrews 1. And we talk about, right here, we're talking about a really cool hermeneutical principle to find out what the, when the last days are. God, actually, you know what? Um, does anybody want to read Hebrews 1, uh, verses 1 and 2? Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2? Yeah. Go ahead, Rob. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. Yep, good. In these, verse 2, in these last days. So the writer of the Hebrews believes that he is living in these last days. Go back to Acts chapter 2. Somebody read me verse 18. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. Right. When will he do it? In those days. What's he referring to? In the last days. From verse 17. Now, if we go back to Ezekiel 39... And this is, I could, I could keep you guys here all day with these sort of prophecies because they're all over. But uh, Ezekiel 39, verses 29. I will not hide my face from them any longer. And he's talking about Israel being restored. If you have an NASB, they even title it that way. That whole, he's going to restore the fortunes of Judah. The before the, I'm sorry, of Jacob. And they're going to be jealous for his holy name. He will be sanctified through them in the sight of many nations. They'll know that I am their Lord God, this is verse 28, because I made them go into exile among the nations and then gathered them again to their own land. And I will leave none of them there any longer. I will not hide my face from them any longer for I will have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel. When this is what this is this yeah this is what Peter's saying 
This is Joel telling us this. We can connect it all. And if you, it, we don't have to go there, but if you go back to the book of Joel, if you really want to get into this, read the book of Joel. It's only like three chapters, <clears throat> four chapters, a 15-minute read. But the book of Joel is a, pro, a prophetic book about the destruction and punishment of Israel that God will in the last days after, after God has gotten angry at Israel. It's, now, Joel, does anyone know when Joel was written? Joel was written around 850 BC, right before the first invasion from Assyria, about 100 years before. So the book of Joel... If we want to be very, very hermeneutical here, the book of Joel is a book about judgment and restoration. God fulfilled that by having the Assyrians invade Israel and he put them into exile. That was the first exile. The second exile was Babylonian, and that was, in, that was the people of Judah. Because remember, Israel was split into two kingdoms. Israel, which was the northern kingdom, and Judah, which was the southern kingdom, where Jerusalem was. So he, he, he came, put them into exile because of their sins, but then after they get out of exile and the temple gets rebuilt, everybody's like, what's going on? When's this new age going to come? Well, the new age is going to come when the Messiah comes, and we know, it, we're, we're know that too, in the Holy Spirit, it's going to come because God, he's going to pour forth his spirit on everybody. Okay, so Joel, in context, is a book of judgment, all right, and restoration, and here we now apply that to this prophecy of Joel in chapter 2 of Acts, when Peter says, this is that. This is what's happening right now. We have Acts chapter two. We have the Holy Spirit coming, but, but there's more here. There's more, there's more stuff here that's gonna make us go, wow, because when is this gonna happen? We know it's gonna happen on the last days, but it gets, it gets a little, you know, prophetical. Well, it's definitely prophetical, but this is where a lot of people run out and go and forget about the Bible and they go to the newspaper or the websites and say, well, this is must be what Joel's talking about. You know, this is going out or like, wow, man, did you see the sun? It, the sun is getting dark and the moon looks red. The yeah, the blood moon, man. This is it. This is Joel, right? So again, we need to put on our hermeneutical glasses and say we need to interpret this in context before we start applying it to the moon here. So he says, I'm going to pour out my spirit in those days. And then even on my bond slaves. And then in verse 19, he will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great day. I'm sorry, before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What is Peter talking about to these people? He's, he's speaking an urgent message saying, there is going to be ultimate destruction coming. Everything that God talked about in the Old Testament about finally judging Israel is about to come to pass. Just like he talked about in, the, in, the, in Joel. There's going to be destruction. And it came to pass. 
and we still aren't out of exile yet. You see, when the Jews were waiting for the Messiah and the Romans were over top of them, they were saying, this, we, we may have some freedom to worship the law, but God has still not done what he said he's going to do, send a Messiah and reign over the world. When is this going to happen? Well, that's what he is saying is happening here, but he's talking about a destruction. When is that destruction going to happen? So there's a lot of hyperbole. What's that? Hyper, hyperbolic. Hi, language. Yeah. You know, it's, it's extreme language. Because some people look at this and say, oh, literally, you know, the, the moon's going to turn to blue. Right. Right. It's again, we got to put on our hermeneutical glasses. Now, when we see this type of language and we start to interpret it with the wrong hermeneutical glasses, with the, out of the context, we make all sorts of misunderstandings. And, mis, and, and so we need to go through the Bible and see what does this word, what does this day of the Lord mean? Now, I, could, I only printed some, but I have all these scriptures here, all these scriptures here from the Old Testament that talk about the day of the Lord. I'll read one. Isaiah 13, 6 and 9. Well... Wail for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger to make the land a desolation and he will exterminate its sinners from it. And I can go on, on and on and on and on and on. Now, when you see that, and then you see language like the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon will be turned to blood, <clears throat> and it talks about blood and fire and vapor and smoke, Robin nailed it on the head. It's hyperbolic, but from a biblical perspective, this is what they call apocalyptic narrative, an apocalyptic literature. We have poetic literature, right, in the Psalms. Who else knows what other, what other books are poetical in the Bible? Song of Solomon. Psalms. What is it? Ecclesiastes. They're um, Proverbs. Job is considered po um, uh, poetical. And if you're a poet and you know this, if, you, if you're a Hebrew scholar and you know Hebrew and you know poetry and you read these books... I mean, I remember the small class that I had on, on, <clears throat> on the Hebrew language. It blew me away on how detailed and how amazing these writers were to really express in the Hebraic language uh, all these different types of techniques, literary techniques that they use, but they're all poetical. So we have to interpret poetically. So when you see apocalyptic language, especially within a historical book, we have no choice but to go to the apocalyptic translation. Now, how do we do that? We don't just start shooting from our hip, going sun, moon, blood. It means this. We go through the scriptures and we see where else these, this language was used. And we do see this throughout scripture. And in all times, in all places, it always means the same thing. And that is destruction, Beyond our, beyond our comprehension. Here's the definition of apocalyptic. Apocalyptic is extremely, uh, extreme, I would say, extreme earth-shattering events with extreme theological significance. 
extreme earth-shattering events with extreme theological significance. That's apocalyptic. So he is talking about that there is going to be in the last days, which are then, which are throughout the New Testament, because we see writers talk about it, and even until maybe now, I don't know what you're going to choose. I don't know. Some people think the last days are still here now, or some people think the last days are, are referred to in the Bible as the days leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, which is the final, which I like what Ken Gentry calls it, the great divorce, where God pretty much follows the Old Testament law and stones the harlot. The, he stones the adulterer, the adulteress. He lives up to his law. And he's now allowed to marry a new bride because what? In the, in the death, in order for a, a, a new covenant to take place, there needs to be the death of, of, of the testor, right? Or the guy that wrote the testament. It was, that was part of the testament. So if, if you're married and your spouse passes, you are now legally able to remarry. Whereas if they were alive, you couldn't do that because you're still in covenant. So unless there's the death of one of the people there in that, but God did, he saved his bride, Israel, didn't he? He, he? he punished the Jews for what they needed to be punished for. But out of that, like throughout the whole Bible, he takes a remnant. And that's the new creation, the new human race. Those that believe are grafted in to the original people of God. It's not those that are from Israel or descended from Israel that are of Israel. No, the real Israel is the spiritual which we are grafted into. So I believe what Jesus or what, what the Holy Spirit is trying to say here, this is just because, again, there's various interpretations on this. I shouldn't say that. There's various applications on this because I like looking at it and going, wow, these guys were writing about the destruction of Jerusalem and that what's going to end up happening in the destruction of Jerusalem is all of these things that you read in this prophecy, when you take sun, moon, blood, and all that stuff, and you look in the past, it's always when there's destruction coming down on a nation because they're being punished by God. So I can't help but think that the Holy Spirit is coming out, and what Peter is saying here is that, yes, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, and I wish I had the... Um, I know I have the scripture in here somewhere, but I have too many um, references. I don't want to spend too much time on this, but we can, if you want, we can go back to it. But when you go back throughout and you look at some of these scriptures, God does talk about during that destruction, during that judgment, his righteous ones will make an escape into the mountains. They will be able to run away from this invading army. And this is exactly, in my opinion, very complementary to Matthew 24, where Jesus talks about the destruction of Jerusalem. And I believe that Matthew 24 is applicable for the hearers of that time. It's not some future event that's going to happen at the end of the world, because it just doesn't make any sense contextually for me to, to, to read that. But there are people that believe that. There are people that believe that the sun, the moon, the blood, and all this stuff is referring to the final battle at the end, okay? So that's another way to do it. For me, hermeneutically, I have a hard time with that. 
I like reading this in because it, again, it goes with the urgency. It goes with the, you know, Jesus becoming king is what these meant, which is what the, their message was, you know, uh, forgiveness, the whole world can have it now. And there was an urgency there. Okay. Yes, Kev. I, I don't want to distract. No, no, I'm just rambling now. So I'm about to well, circle in for a landing. Well, <laughs> it's, a, it's a great, um, all these connections are, are, are great. I, if you open to a telescoping kind of prophetic, so there is a last days that, that are referred to that yeah. is the destruction of Jerusalem in there, but there's an ultimate last days that, that yeah. we see. In the end, and, and obviously the writer doesn't, maybe in a vision they see it, but they don't really understand, but they're writing this down. There's an immediate kind of interpretation. Yeah. Um, and then they're... Yeah, uh, it's called the double fulfillment of prophecy. So it's usually in prophecy that you take that. And if it, I ever was going to give to a double interpretation, it would only be within the realm of prophecy. Because then if you do it in anything else, now you, again, you've lost your, your, you've lost your science and now it's whoever wants to interpret anything. But even with double interpretation of prophecy, and I agree, that's a that's a definitely a viable way to approach things. Um, my, I rather not because then when I go back to the Old Testament, it sort of violates my hermeneutical rule a little bit. The only time I do it is when I see it in the New Testament saying this is what he, he meant as well too. So I, but in this case, the New Testament interpreting. Yes, the New Testament interpreting the old. But, and that's why I went to the big route where I went today with hermeneutics, because here we see not the first time this prophecy is mentioned in Joel. This is the second time it's mentioned. So it's the fulfillment of that. So in this case, it would have to be a triple interpretation of prophecy. So last days it meant for Joel in that, and then last days it meant here, and now there's another last days that's coming in the end. And, and technically there will be days that are the last days. But that phrase, the last days, the Bible tells us that at least we know that these people that wrote the New Testament believe they were living in the last days. What that means, last days to the destruction of Jerusalem, it makes sense. If they were running around waiting because they thought the rapture was going to come, then the scripture is wrong because it didn't. And they were waiting on something that didn't happen. And there's prophecies that are pointing to something that didn't happen. So again, what you have to be careful of with this is trying to come up with a complete answer because um, the hard thing is, is that these prophecies point in, 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 you know, and we, we're sort of looking through the clouds and we're seeing different, we, we know the direction is that way, but we can't really see clearly enough to know what's there. My direction here is I think they're talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. And I think that somehow, again, my, here's my crazy outlandish one minute left. I, would, I wouldn't say this one in the beginning, but I believe that the book of Revelation and this is something that has been, uh, tons of scholars have validated this, was written before the destruction of Jerusalem, where they always had a 95, an AD 95 date on it. There's a book out there called Before Jerusalem Fell, which is a, a doctoral thesis on why the, book of, or why the book of Revelation was written before the destruction of Jerusalem. And that really fits well with this. And it fits well with the destruction of Jerusalem. So if you read the book of Revelation, 
and you read the account of the war on the Jews in AD 70 by Josephus, you will see parallels, like literal parallels. So either he copied that, which I don't believe he did, or he wrote it beforehand, which I believe that, it, it, that, that that's what happened. Um, but why am I saying all this? I was really, tr- I was trying to go to, to, uh, to make a point here. Um, AD 70, book of, uh, um, Matt, the ser- uh, okay, so yeah, so this matches up with Matthew 24 as well. And so that all aligns well f- with this. So I, like what I was going to say, again, is I was going to throw that out there, the book of Revelation. And again, I would love to study this one, like when we have the, maybe the next time we do Sunday school, because the gospel of John and in, in, in the book of Revelation uh, is so, it's paralleled, right? And the way that when you look at the book of Revelation, it's written from a covenantal perspective. So when you, all the aspects of a covenant from the Old Testament, John uses as he's writing the book of Revelation. So to me, it's almost like the book of Revelation is this incredible picture of this ceremony or even worship service going on in heaven before the judgment of God on his bride and also the announcement of the church coming. And then obviously the last few chapters of Revelation are for the, are for the final 19, 20, 21, the new heavens and new earth. But to me, it just fits really, really well in there that, that the destruction of Jerusalem is the great divorce that God does against Israel and then takes on his new bride. And so the revelation really gels well with that, but that's a study for a different time. But um, there's, I know we have, we could probably take five minutes if we have any questions. I hope I didn't go too crazy, too far out, but I, I, I really hope you grasped where my wife is. I'm going to get a lecture from my wife later on this one. Yeah. Now I'm recording these so you can get these on the podcast. And if you're interested in, in learning more, um, if you have any questions, let me know. Th- you these are. Send the verses on the last days that you have yeah, I would love to do that. I'll send you guys any, all all the notes and all the verses, and I'll give you reading material. Um, it just to me, it's a really neat thing to see how the Lord uh, how the Lord works. Now, how does this? I have a yeah. If you had to put in one sentence. <laughs> yeah. Uh, It meant the period of time from this point in history, Acts 2, until AD 70. And I would say that that's where I would say they're talking about it. Not that I don't believe that maybe there's a really good, I'd say it's a 50-50 chance that we too are continuing in that category as last days. So when the Jews in another place in the Bible, it's not referring to that period also, correct? No, the, the Jews, when they, when they talk about the last days, they're talking about the same time that the New Testament writers are talking. But the, the days leading up to the launching of the new kingdom. I'm talking about that specific period that you just named. Yeah. Are they always referring to that period? Yes, in the New Testament, yes. One more time. Yeah, let me give you Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. Oh, yes. Yep, it would be from the point in history uh, of, of Acts chapter 2, which is uh, A.D. 30. AD 30. Yep, or A.D., right? Is that A.D. 33 or A.D. 30? I'm asking Robin. Yeah, yeah, A.D. 30, right? That's when Jesus died and on the cross. And then from to A.D. 70. Yeah, 
I think those are the specific last days because that's when we are going to see these cataclysmic events that are talking about. And that's what the earth, if you read the New Testament letters with that, just try it with that, with that context in mind, they make a lot more sense when it comes to the continuity of the end. For me, it was really, uh, I had to shed certain traditions that confused me, uh, that, that pointed to different ideas about it. I couldn't understand because everything was put in, into this future distant thing. Uh, and actually, in a lot of ways, I was led to misunderstand Revelation and think it was you know, written later. But there was so much evidence that, that changed my thinking. Mm-hmm. I started thinking outside the box. And like, for example, I mean, nowhere in Revelation does it say, I mean, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple would be so significant to the people of Israel at the time, yet it's never even mentioned in Revelation. So it had to be, in my thinking, that's just one idea, that had to be written prior to 70 before its destruction. Or else it yeah. has been mentioned all over these. Well, listen, here, that was a great point, but here's, here's what sold me. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation, which means apocalypse, the, re- the revealing of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. So now I know these all have to come to make sense to the writers. For God not to be like some confused, you know, uh, guy sending messages down to us, that can't be there if this is 2,000 years in the future, or 3,000, or 4,000, or 5,000, in my opinion. So that's just one of many. But when you see the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation is literally taken out of the Old Testament, primarily of Ezekiel, a lot of from Isaiah, a ton from Daniel. And so... He was writing with all of that in mind, and all of those things are about exile and deliverance, which are a type of and a foreshadow of the ultimate exile and deliverance in the end. So we'll end there.